Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Growth Fundy Talks with me, David Gregory, where I speak with entrepreneurs and experts on startup, business, and personal growth. On this episode, I was joined by Howard Kingston, co-founder and CMO of Adludio, a mobile ad tech company who are changing the way brands advertise on mobile by making the ads more memorable and enjoyable. Howard is incredibly passionate about startups and growth, and prior to Adludio, who is part of the team at We Are Interactive, who created the football game Iron Player. He played a significant role there as head of marketing, helping scale the audience to 15 million users, which subsequently led to an acquisition. Howard spoke about overcoming the challenges of working with big brands, as well as an in-depth overview on viral growth. If these are channels you're considering, his insight here is a must, as well as other great actionable advice on putting the right foundations in place and how to use the bullseye framework to test and grow any type of business. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and if you have any questions, you can contact me on hello at growthfinity.com, and you can find the show notes on the blog. Enjoy. Hey, Howard, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So, Howard, you're the co-founder of Adludio, is that right? Correct. Cool. Could you perhaps give a bit of background on what Adludio is and what your role there is too, and... Uh, a brief background on yourself as well for listeners who haven't come across Adludio or yourself before. Okay, cool, sure. So Adludio, we're all about making mobile advertising memorable. So if you look at uh, kind of brand advertising, uh, most of it is done through banner ads and video advertising. And both of these things were created in the 1990s, right? So banner ads were created in 1994, video advertising a few years after that. And this has been maintained a very linear progression, so it hasn't really changed. Like That's actually the, the main way brands advertise on kind of mobile and stuff now. But the actual devices that we use have gone from desktop to laptop to tablet to mobile and has grown hugely, right? There's like, whatever, 15,000 different types of devices. So the key thing is that people interact with the devices differently, but yet the advertising formats that were created for it were made for desktop computers back in 1990s, right? So that's why it doesn't work. Nobody can remember that, you know, that's why mobile advertising now we believe does not work. So like if I was to ask you what was the last mobile advertisement you've ever seen? Mm, um, oh, I don't know. They're one of my pit hates. Yeah, well, yeah. like the key thing is, right, anyone listening will kind of go, uh, I can't actually remember any mm. mobile ad, despite the fact it's been in your pocket the last 15 years and you've been looking at it so long. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, mobile advertisements are not making the impact. Uh, so we've created this new way of, that, of doing mobile advertising that people use their finger, touch and engage with the brand in, uh, in the mobile ad and we've created a way of doing it that makes it a minimum of 10 times more memorable than any other form of advertising on mobile. So we're looking to change the way people advertise on mobile devices. So that's where Adludio, that's what Adludio does. Mm. And we work with pretty much all the major kind of Fortune 500 brands now, like so Procter & Gamble, Unilever, BBC, ITV, Nestle, Heinz, blah, 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 all these kind of guys. So, uh, and we've been growing pretty steadily since we launched about two years ago. We've done about 2 million in funding, got a team of 25 based in London, got an office in Paris as well. So, uh, so yeah, really good. We're looking to 
kind of change the world in that way. Um, I am a co-founder. I started the business with uh, two, three other guys um, from an initial kind of an initial idea that's kind of built into something much bigger. And prior to that, um, I was head of marketing at a gaming company that grew really well. Grew to six million users from launch in the first year, then grew to about I think about twenty million users, and then the business was sold. So I, me, kind of as a person, I'm all about super passionate about marketing, growth, and startups, and I like definitely like to combine those things as much as possible. So super passionate about marketing. Um, I'd say my kind of areas of speciality do loads of growth hacking and stuff like that. So yeah, that's kind about me I, I'm Irish as well by the way yeah I can hear that <laughs> and uh, with um, I mean something that's quite interesting I guess um, from a, a startup who's trying to grow by working with sort of big um, you know corporate companies and, and well-known brands um, hmm. you know what are the, what are the challenges that you found um, in you know getting on board with them and um, how have you overcome those challenges yeah, so that's a great question. Um, lots of corporates now say that they want to work with startups. I think they realize that something is happening in the tech world and they don't really understand it, but they see industries like, um, I don't know, like give me an example of some industries that are just being like killed. They think, see what's happening with like Uber in taxis and uh, like I don't know, Kodak with digital and all this kind of stuff, right? Mm. And they just see that, okay, we've got to understand this thing or potentially will be disrupted and will be killed. So brands and big corporates are looking at how they can kind of work with startups. However, there's a big difference between meeting a big brand or a big corporate and actually getting a big deal live. Mm. Um, And... It's not. I don't know if there's one simple answer, but kind of breaking it down. Um, the first stage is, you know, kind of meeting people, and yeah, like there's a, there's a kind of a thing where there's loads of startups meet with big corporates, right? But what you want to try and get away from is there's this thing called. I've heard some people call it like a petting zoo is when like, oh, these corporates come and they have an innovation day and like all oh, these startups come in to meet like one of these big kind of Fortune 500 brands or a couple of them and they meet and they, you know, the guys, the corporates think the startups are amazing and the startups think, yeah, amazing. You know, we're, we've been speaking to this, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, ba ba ba, And uh, it's all exciting and then Nothing happens the next month, nothing happens the next month, nothing happens the next month. Six months later, there's still no deal has been signed. Mm. So uh, that's what I mean by a petting zoo. They kind of come in and the corporates can kind of come into startups and like kind of go, oh, how amazing are these things? But no deal gets actually signed. So that's like the challenge, right? How do you cut through that? Um, and yeah, we've definitely learned a lot through that. We've kind of, I don't know, probably done about... 30, 30 major glo- brand deals now um, and about 100 strategic partnerships. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of like it's a really tough sales cycle. I can, you know, I don't know what you'd like me to chat about. I can kind of dive a little bit deeper into that, but that's just kind of like the high level. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess what would be um, 
useful to know is like you know saying trying to get sort of past that that petting zoo stage you know getting you know how do you actually um you know go about you know getting a deal and getting something signed and actually working with them um you know rather than just waiting months on end and you know nothing really comes of it cool okay so i want to break it down because there's almost like different stages in your life cycle as a startup Mm -hmm. so i'm going to talk about how you do your first ever deal with a big brand um or a big kind of corporate first right so um the first one's there's two different ways you can approach it right you can kind of go through something which is a bit like virtual reality which is not definitely not like a long-term possibility (laughs) which is not a long-term play but is definitely effective as a short-term play right and that is that there's this massive bubble in the market at the moment around corporate accelerators Right, you've heard about them. There's ones like over here in the UK. You've got BBC Labs. You've got Microsoft Ventures. You have, uh, uh, don't know. You name me some more. Do you probably know a few others. Well, I think it was it, well Disney, not here. Yeah, it was a, totally. Ar- Arkies Techstars. Yeah. Disney, ba 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 ba, right? Yeah. So I know me, I have a list, uh, like an Excel list of like all, pretty much all the corporate accelerators in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are like the, this is a, an area where there is a petting zoo. However, someone is responsible for making that pet, petting zoo happen, mm-hmm. right? So you've got somebody within Disney who has pledged a budget towards making something actually come out of it. And they look bad if nothing happens at the back of it. So you have to understand that the that most corporate um, employees are driven by a motivation, right? And that motivation is usually, the number one motivation is not to look bad in front of their boss, right? That is just the reality of it. It's a different motivator, um, to someone who's a startup founder whose number one motivation is world domination, right? It's different. Yeah, it's just the rules. They're playing a different game, right? Not saying one is better than the other per se. They're just playing, but, you know, if you want to climb the ladder, you got to make sure that you don't, you never look bad in front of other people, essentially. Um, <clears throat> so going into, again, if you're a startup and you're selling into big corporates, you've got an enterprise type sale or whatever. Going into these accelerator programs are like a bit of a no-brainer because if you get into one, a a commercial deal is there for you to lose, essentially, right? Um, So that would be definitely the first, you know, definitely part of your go-to-market strategy. If you sell into big brands, that would be part of it. Um, So just thinking to our initial, our first deal, one of ours, our launch deals was through that but one of it was i can kind of get the other side one if one part of the strategy is that the other strategy is just kind of going in business as usual and just like the key thing is it's kind of getting into the right person um in in a brand or whoever that is and into a corporate and getting him to believe in it so much he has to sell it into the rest of the company and it is possible to do if you do it right and we were lucky enough kind of early on we got in with the right person who was a real decision maker and 
he made a deal happen because he liked our product so much. Um, so the key thing in that second part of strategy, not the kind of corporate accelerator part, the second element of uh, is getting in with the right person who is actually a decision maker who has the authority to sign off a deal because um, in these big corporates, people can either be a decision maker, they can be the person who writes the check, or they can be someone who is like a coach and an advocate, someone who loves you and will help you get into the right people in the corporate, but they might not be responsible for signing off deals. And you have to make sure you know the distinction because if you have a great contact in, say, let's pick a corporate for just example. Yes, let's use like Red Bull, right? Just say you want to do a deal with Red Bull. And you go in and you have a, a contact in Red Bull and he's really helpful and he's able to help you navigate how to get a deal in Red Bull. You have to understand if he's not the guy who can actually sign the deal because you may be putting pressure on him to sign the deal. And he's like, hey, I'm trying to help you, but uh, you know, I don't have responsibility to do it. And you have to establish what their role is in helping you get into a deal, if that makes sense. No, completely. I think you know the point on finding the right person is is spot on. You know, it's it's always a case of you know it's sort of gatekeepers, uh, you know, in these big companies that you need to find and and get past, and you know, in order yeah. in order to you know just get some kind of response. Uh, yeah, I, I just say one more thing then, and then when you do do it, you have to understand as well that never in a big corporate. Never will just one per, uh, you know, I said decision maker, but reality is no one, there'll never be a deal where just one person sees you and goes, yep, sign off, done, right? There's going to be multiple levels of sign off. So you need to know what those different sign off points are, mm-hmm. especially at the early stage when you don't have as much credibility and the risk, per- perceived risk is higher, right? Because understanding that anyone, who needs to sign it off, any one of them could make themselves look bad if this goes belly up, right? Mm-hmm. If, if your product crashes and brings down the server, right? Because that's what they're worried about. So all of these who's, guys whose signature on it will look bad. So you need to get try and get coverage with each one of these people. Just say four people are responsible for signing up. You need to somehow get in with each of them. And this is where advisors to your business come in really, really well. So assuming you have an advisory board for your business or mentors, if you don't, you should already. And these are people who like know your industry. So I know with us, one of our key deals with, for example, the BBC, when we did it initially, uh, we had one or two advisors who were super well connected in there. And when we were going forward, when our kind of commercial deal was being proposed we asked these advisors to have a friendly word and you know it just kind of not that that necessarily influenced them but it kind of some just someone to say hey these guys are good you know um you know they're, they're kind of thumbs up kind of thing as opposed to just who are these guys have never heard of them before yeah. so um yeah no that's cool that's uh, some great advice um I mean, you also mentioned um, how you know you're interested, like you know, in startups and growth hacking and, and marketing mm-hmm. in general. Um, you know, where did that all be- we know where did that all begin? Um, you know, when did you first sort of become interested in it? Was it uh, you know when you were really young, or did it kind of happen by chance? 
um, you know, one thing I noticed was you you went back to uni. Um, was was it then? Was there something around that time that sparked it all? Um, so I say the kind of startup passion was always there. So you know, kind of classic thing. First thing I was, you know, in school I used to, I had. Um, what was it, the Simpsons album that they brought out, like, back in, I don't know, 2013, do the Bartman and stuff. Yeah. So, like, I had copies of that, and I was ripping it off, and I was selling that to other um, kind of students. That was, like, one of the first things I did. And then when I was, like, about 18, 19, I uh, went to Ibiza one year, got really inspired by the kind of music scene, said there's nothing like this in Dublin, where I was living at the time. Dublin needs to have a club night like this. So set up a club night with a couple of friends and ran that for about four years, running like bringing over US house DJs. And I got into DJing as well. But it was actually the creation of the... I kind of learned around the end of that journey that like that was an amazing experience. But I really... You know, it was actually probably maybe the music was almost secondary to it. It was more so the creation of the events and the and the community and stuff like that that actually got me so excited. Yeah, I went back to uni, set up another business while I was in the university. Um, but I've been doing marketing for probably like 10 years now. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I set up the... When I was in university, I set up another business, Irish Ancestral Holidays. It was an amazing learning experience. Didn't make a huge amount of money on it. Made a bit, but uh, definitely learned a lot with that. And uh, then moved to Australia, set up an agency while I was out there doing web and marketing, digital marketing. And then when I came back to London, that's when I hooked up with the founders of this gaming company. They were just about to launch, needed someone to head up their marketing I did that, and it was a great success. Learned huge amounts. You know, you know, we were growing by eighty thousand users a day at one point, mainly through kind of viral marketing. And uh, yeah, and then you know, the, always the goal with working with them was to I wanted to immerse myself in a high growth venture back business because I want that's what I wanted to do um, myself. So. When I went through that journey with the We Are Interactive, I Am Player guys, um, once that kind of once I had this idea, I kind of just knew I was ready for that um, to make the step, and that's where kind of Adludio started. So it's kind of like a long way to describe it, yeah. but that's kind of my journey, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. Um, I mean, you know, mentioning uh, you know We Are Interactive and I Am Player, you know, those are. You know, some of the numbers you mentioned are, you know, really impressive. Mm. Um, you know, I guess for, you know, any sort of startup founder or marketer, um, you know, what advice would you have for them? You know, obviously, throughout those sort of stages of growth, it's quite different. I mean, what would you say, you know, to help them get to, you know, the first 10,000 users and then beyond that to focus getting, you know, to 100,000 users and then hit, you know, the million uh, mark and beyond you know what what are the key sort of things that you should think about in those stages and what foundations are important to have in place yeah good question so the on the foundation side um this is the biggest mistake i see people make when it comes to marketing um most people are just like they've got a product and they go okay i want to start getting some users in right what will i do facebook works um, really well, I hear. So I just go literally open up a tab on their Chrome, 
Google Facebook, Facebook ads, and go straight in and start doing some ads, right? That's, I would say, the most common mistake people make, right? And it's a real foundational piece, but um, there are two... To avoid that, there are two foundational elements that any marketing person needs to put in place before they start even thinking about how they're going to grow it. So if someone was to say, oh, like, you know, I've got this business which is like, you know, Uber for cats or whatever, right? How will I grow it? It doesn't matter what the business, there's these two foundational things you have to put in place. And once you know these two things, you can bring it into any business and kind of apply these two things. And they're really straightforward, right? But nobody seems to take the time to do them. And it just makes or breaks. It's like having a foundation to build your marketing plan on, if otherwise it'll be built on sand, right? And those two things. The first thing is knowing really well who your target market is, right? You know, really quite narrowly knowing because most people kind of go oh who's your target market first of all you unbelievably surprised how many people will say everybody mm. right oh uber for cats everybody wants uber for cats right i go okay so my 78 year old grandmother who lives on an island off ireland with no electricity um is like, well okay everyone except her so okay well then my four-year-old nephew okay and him Right, as ne- so, okay. So the, what I'm trying to say is, never everybody. Right, it's never everybody. No matter how awesome you think your product is. Um, secondary, your target market should be at launch should be so narrow that it's so narrow it makes you feel uncomfortable. I.e., like you, you're thinking, oh my god, there's so many people that you know it is relevant for that I'm missing out on. And that's, that's the way it should be. Because, if, again, if I said to you, target market, and you said, oh, it's like males age 20 to 45, right? That's all of them, right? It's just too broad. Because when you start, the reason that's important is because when you start actually layering in what kind of marketing strategies you're going to do and like your branding and your messaging and even making to say you do decide we go with Facebook ads, even making the Facebook ad, like, do you, do you really think that an advertisement will resonate, the same advertisement will resonate for a 20-year-old as a 45-year-old, right? What a 20-year-old is motivated by is, like, massively different than what's motivated for a 45-year-old, right? Hugely different. And also, the amount you need to pay to access on, say, Facebook a 45-year-old versus a 20-year-old will vary differently. So what you should be, I always recommend people to try and narrow it down to about a five-year age gap. Like, you know, a target market age 20 to 29 um, is, like, really good, actually, because you can just be super narrow and just really get into the minds of your customer. And what do they do? Where do they go? Like, what's important to them in life? And then you can just do really, really good messages around it. Because the reason people feel uncomfortable about, ha- about having so narrow, they kind of naturally think, oh, there's so many people that my bit and product is perfect for and I'm not targeting them. But, hey, you know, there's, you know, there's a billion people on Facebook, right? Again, just using that as an example. There are more than enough people. Like, if if your like initial goal is to reach ten thousand customers, 
like having too narrow is not the big issue, right? You know, there's more than enough people to target in the world um, and just have it super, super narrow and everything you do will be much more effective by doing it that way. Um, so that's the first one, having super um, target, target market. So how you do that is... You know, you break down your demographics, male, female, uh, location, try and make it, you know, super succinct into cities. Ideally, just launch in one city, if, you know, pro, you know, ideally, depending on your business type, um, you know, age, and then start moving into more psychographical stuff, like if they have certain types of interests and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, do they support a certain football team? Listen, so the more rounded out you can get, the more effective all your, av- your marketing will become that you do afterwards. So that's the first foundation. Then the second foundation is, again, really obvious. What are you trying to achieve, right? What is your goal? What's your, what are you trying to achieve? And again, sounds... Super obvious, but most people, I would say 90% of businesses that start don't have that written down, right? What are they trying to do? Where are they trying to be by month three? And, you know, that does not mean uh, we want to be really big or we want to have a well-known brand. Like, that's that's mm-hmm. not a an objective that you can you know, really kind of strive towards. What it needs to be is, you know, really well-known acronym SMART, S-M-A-R-T. Um, and that mean, just means that it should be, it should sound more like we want to have 3,000 uh, users by the 4th of July 2015, right? And then you can really, your whole mind just hones towards hitting that. You can break that 3,000 down over three months, 1,000 month, one month, whatever that is. Um, and you, you can just focus what you need to achieve and then you know the people, how you're going to achieve it. Then you're ready to start building on your market, have, brainstorming your marketing strategies, right? Um, yeah, so like those two things, like are they kind of stuff that you've never heard before? No. I'm telling you, nobody does that. those two things, and that's why most people fail right. at growing their business as well. Because without those two things, like you're, you know, you just can't do a good marketing strategy. And that's, uh, yeah. So they're like the two foundational things. I'm not touching on product market fit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm assuming you have them in place already. And mm-hmm. um, this is purely just for a growth strategy I was talking about. And then, you know, so once. You know, once you've got those foundations in place, uh, then you've got your product market fit. Um, you know, you you touched on you know when you grew uh, Iron Player, you know, through viral marketing and using viral yeah. growth. You know, what are the what are the sort of triggers and um, and mechanisms that you used um, in that that worked well um, that are possibly you know applicable to other products? Sure. Um, so there were. I would say from learnings and what I see from, if we're just going to double down on the area of uh, viral marketing, which is, of course, just one potential user acquisition channel. I know that you had the guys from the Gabriel Weinberg mm-hmm. dude uh, on, on one of your episodes earlier. Like his traction book, just to kind of step back and I'll come back to how we grew I Am Player and mm-hmm. some kind of takeaway strategies on that. Um, I would definitely recommend anybody who's interested in growing. Like my my kind of process for 
planning out my growth strategy is A, those two foundational things I was just telling you about. The second part of my uh, planning process is use the bullseye framework that uh, Gabriel Weinberg talks about. Um, List out those 19 potential user acquisition channels, brainstorm with my team or my co-founder for each single one. You know, what can we do? Ba 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 ba. Gets you super pumped, super excited. Then rein it in on the bullseye framework into like prioritizing about kind of seven things to, to do. And then plotting them into like a, a time schedule for the first three months. Mm-hmm. Like that's exactly how you do it. And that's a very like that's almost like a pro marketing strategy right there that either you can, you know, give to a CEO or an investor and they'd be like, yeah, these guys are in control of the situation, right? So um, purely just pulling it back into one of those uh, 19 user acquisition channels, Mm -hmm. which is uh, viral marketing. Um, So really really see there are kind of, if you're looking to grow your business um, through a more kind of viral way, really seen, and from our experience, there's like four different pots of strategies that you can apply. And this is a framework that um, you can really take into any business, I believe. And these four pots of strategies are, the first one is around product innovation, right? And this is kind of, if you look at most, um, if, if you look at, most kind of definitions of what growth hacking is, it's usually like the intersection of marketing and engineering, right? And there's this kind of like area where, you know, you're evolving product to deliver growth, right? So, you know, I would say the traditional viewpoint of what a marketer does always used to be kind of communications and all this kind of stuff. Now, if you want to be a rock star marketer, you have to have a good understanding of product, um, you don't have to necessarily code, um, but you need to have a good understanding of, like, if you tweak a product, what could happen, right? Mm. So this first kind of pot of strategy, the first of four pots of strategies that I'll kind of touch on is product innovation. That's where you make a, a change to a product that results in a user behavior changing and delivering the objective that you're wanting to happen, right? So I'll try and bring that back into a, a core case in point uh, that we used it on I Am Player. So I Am Player, the game that we grew to whatever millions of users, um, was it's a soccer game, right? So in the soccer game, the core point of the game is that you, you know, you play a game, you score some goals, and then uh, you're, like in real life, you'd be tired and you'd run out of energy, and you have a choice. Either you can drink a, a, an energy drink, which, you, of course, you'd have to buy through a virtual item, and that's how we made money, or else you'd have to wait and just, like, rest and wait till the next day to play again, right? So that was kind of like the game loop. So this is, like, the core motivator, the core kind of driver of people's behaviors. And people were so addicted to this game. Like they used to play it for 40 minutes a day, right? Every single day. These guys were just like crazy about this game. So when they played, they didn't, they didn't want to wait till tomorrow, right? They definitely didn't. And like the cans of, they were actually virtual cans of Red Bull, right? That you'd buy and drink and they're cost a dollar each or something like that. Now, 
people did buy loads of them, but like you don't want to buy them all the time, right? So this is the key. This is like the crack, the thing that people wanted in the product more than anything else. They wanted to play again. So we, after a few months, and we were we'd actually launched about two three months at this point, and our we had some initial good PR and stuff like that, and we had a few little bits of spikes, but our growth curve was like not growing whatsoever, and. Uh, we were coming up with ideas, like what can we do? And I'll kind of touch on that in a second. But um, one idea that we had was, right, how if we, what if we did an innovation on the product? We did a product change that when someone played a game and they ran out of energy and they had this choice to buy or wait, we gave them the option to pop up, uh, something would pop on their screen and say, hey, don't want to wait? Invite five of your friends to the game to play right now and you can get energy, you know, 400% energy or something like that and you know if they invited five friends and literally the day that we put that live in the game like I have you know uh, Shema didn't have it here with me but I have a graph where it just shows the inflection point of hockey stick growth and mm. we grew from I think we were at, we're at about kind of 40,000 users at that point and we grew to 450,000 users mm. in about three weeks. Amazing. And none of that was through paid, right? Mm. Um, so that was like one really good example of how we tweaked the product um, to affect user growth. Now, how could you do that? Uh, so the really key thing is, the key part of that is knowing the motivator of the user, right? What is the like the lever and this is kind of like a classic gamification thing, right? Like people are motivated by rewards. They're, re- they're, they're motivated by fame, being able to brag to their friends. They're, being, they're motivated by money, you know, whether they earn money or whether they save money. And they're motivated by access. Um, they're motivated by access if, you know, you can give them backstage pass or like free access, free content or something like that. These are like three kind of classic motivators. So if you can play around with that with your product, um, you may have some way that you can mot- you can kind of influence people's behavior to do something you want them to do, e.g. invite a friend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the only thing I would say on that is if you want to be successful with product innovation and actually viral marketing at all, you just need to be prepared to like picture a mad scientist like at Einstein. Um, you got to be that mad scientist. And the re- reason I kind of say the scientist is you just got to be prepared to experiment with stuff. And um, because yes, that invite five friends thing, when I tell you this story, you kind of go, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. It's like, of course, like that makes sense. But Hey, we tried 50 things that didn't work before that worked. Um, so having a very structured approach to trying one or two things a week. Um, and if they don't work, which a lot of them won't, just ditching them. But just uh, but trying stuff every so well, you know, systematically. And then you'll, you'll find a couple of them will hit. Unless you have that discipline to try stuff regularly, I don't think you'll be able... You, you might strike it lucky, but probably you won't. Yeah. Um, so that's the first example of that's one the first kind of pot of strategies. There's three others. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want me to go and teach all. all the I'm, other three. I would love to hear them all. I'd love to hear them all. It's brilliant so far. 
<laughs> Are you sure? Do you want, okay, oh, cool. Sure. <laughs> okay, cool. So anyway, the first part of strategies is product innovation. Mm-hmm. The second one is unique acquisition channels. The third one is other people's networks. And the fourth is um, uh, deep diving your data, right? So anyway, so touch on the first one, which is product innovation. The second one is unique acquisition channels. So what I've seen in the way that tech businesses grow is that um, the businesses that grow really fast that have grown really fast have found a way to exploit a platform on the web in a new way right again I'm kind of talking a bit abstractly about that but I'll give you a good example right so um, as we can see like in this kind of like digital landscape, there's always new platforms coming out. There's Instagram, there's Facebook, there's like ba 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 ba, and you'll always see that there's someone that figures out how to kind of almost like siphon off users from these platforms in a new way that gives them like explosive growth. I'll give you an example of how we did that in I Am Player, right? So uh, around the time that we were growing I Am Player was around the time that uh, Facebook were toying with bringing out this thing called Open Graph, right? It was this new thing. You've probably heard about it now. But at the time, it was completely new, right? And we had seen that Spotify were, you know, there was this new company called Spotify. It wasn't that well known at the time. But they were one of the, I think, two or three companies who were allowed into this, what's called a closed beta from Facebook, where Facebook were like privately testing this new product called OpenGraph. Now, OpenGraph, for the people that don't know what it is, is, you know, when you're on your Facebook feed and um, like you see that your mate John is listening to Lady Gaga on Spotify, right? That's the OpenGraph. It's a way that Stuff that's connected, you know, uh, that's Facebook connected, an app, you know, you log in through Facebook, it automatically shares your actions onto the Facebook um, kind of timeline, right? Uh, Newsfeed, I should say. Now, so, so if someone isn't there going, I want to share this, I want to share this, automatically done. So this is a new piece of functionality. Spotify were one of the, like the, fir- one of the first three companies that did that. And literally, if you want to know how Spotify became so big, that's the reason, right? Mm. Because if you think about it, the first few times you saw that these things coming out on Facebook ticker, you were like, cool, what's that? And you clicked on it. But the more times you started seeing it, you know, you just said, oh, that again, I'm not going to click it anymore. So, but that took a while before people got bored of it. Anyway, what did we do? We saw that happening. We said, wow, this is new. I saw Spotify's growth curve. And uh, we said, right, we have to be, when this comes out of, Open Graph comes out of closed beta, we have to be one of the first companies because we knew there would be a limited time of opportunity that people could get get exponential growth through it. So we were, we were one of the first companies that were able that were able to integrate. We contacted Facebook, all the rest. We were straight in. Once they opened, we were, the day that they opened, we were in. Um, and we kind of, we put on, you know, you know we um, integrated Open Graph. And again, if I was to show you a, uh, a graph of the I am player growth, uh, we, from the kind of, 
product innovation. We had grown from let's say, about 40,000 users up to about 450,000 users. We still continued to grow, but albeit at a very slower pace. And we're up to about 550,000 users at that point, maybe 600,000 users over the next kind of two months. And then the day that we put Open Graph live, we went from about 600,000 users up to 1.3 million users. Again, that was in no more than a month. And that was like very kind of a very steep growth curve. Um, you know, that was the point we were growing by 80,000 users a day. And, you know, that causes its own problems because, you you know, you may not have the business built for that. And, you know, mm. our, our infrastructure was wobbling and all that kind of stuff. But it was a good problem to have. And again, that didn't, there was no marketing costs associated to that. Um, so, so that's how we did it. Yes, Open Graph is still in the market and everyone can install it. Will they get the same results? No, they won't. And the reason um, is that I, I liken this area of unique acquisition channels to be very similar to the stock market, right? If, you, if there's a, you know, a new stock in the market or something like that that's really underpriced and people can get a great return on investment from it, Right, some people will invest their money at the low price, and they will get a great return. That will be a great investment because they'll be able to get a great return from it. The way the market works is, other people will figure that out, and you know, either word will get around, or people will see that too, and they'll jump in on, and they'll all start putting money into that stock. Right? What happens when the st- when more people put money in the stock, the price goes up. But more importantly, the returns people get decrease, Mm -hmm. right? So the kind of the impact that people will get diminishes. The kind of return they will get diminishes. And that's exactly the same as these kind of new acquisition channels. Uh, When they come out, someone will find out a way to, to, to... get great growth from a new platform like Open Graph. Like just always new examples coming out. And uh, the first few people that can take advantage of that will win big. And then the people that are kind of are slow, slow movers will try it and it'll be too late and they won't get the results. So there's loads of examples like Singa do with Facebook. Um, you know, Airbnb did it with Craigslist. Um, you know, we did it with Facebook. Um, you know, Spotify did it with Facebook. Uh, Clarity, the the app, did it with LinkedIn. Like, ba 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 ba. The the examples just keep on going, right? Yeah. So, um, so like the key thing for you, if you're a marketer and you want to figure out how can what are the new unique acquisition channels that I can take advantage of, um, the key thing is to you just got to be constantly on the lookout for businesses that new breakaway businesses that are just like hockey sticking right um and then you just go in have a look what they're doing and copy it like you know what i mean like there's no nothing to be ashamed of about copying great marketing ideas as long as you're one of the first people doing it because then you'll get the results you want if you know so i always keep a strong eye out of businesses that are like breakaway growth and uh then go in and figure out how they're doing it and see if we can replicate it. It won't work every time, but it works most of the time. Um, you can be able to replicate it for your business. Um, any questions on that? That's the second. Yeah. Um, what Do you think there are any 
potential platforms or you know new acquisition channels um, that you think are you know have a a lot of potential for growth for Dude, um, for startups? I mean, Dude, are there any are there any there... any particular ones that that you think have just got huge potential? Dude, totally. Like, where are the which are the biggest new platforms, emerging platforms of today? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I always look at sort of Snapchat and Instagram, and it's just. Totally. But it's interesting because there, there still haven't been any of those huge no breakout one, you stories. Know what? Yeah. Someone will figure out a way yeah. to acquire users from it because no one else is doing it. Mm. Um, users on Instagram and users on Snapchat are not expecting it. So if you figure out a way, yeah, like you'll need to figure it out. I don't know what that answer is, mm. you know, but like just say, for example, um, even Tinder. Did you see the the Ex Machina movie that hacked, that kind of did a growth hack yes. on Twitter? Yeah. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because like that, they were the first people at it. They got press all around the world. And for them, for that movie, like awareness, it's less about people actually clicking through to the website. It's more about like, public awareness so that was incredible yeah. right and now you have loads of people i know like actually two other companies that are trying to do exactly the same thing as they did now uh, but they're not going to get the same results right um they're not going to get all the worldwide press for doing it mm. but that was an example new platform doing something in a different way like it's all ripe for it uh so yeah uh you know snapchat instagram would be the, the standout too but you know, lots of others. Another way is, is even the existing platforms constantly bring out new features. And those features, because if you look at it, Facebook, when we did Open Graph, Facebook was around for years, right? It's not as if Facebook was new, but Open Graph was new. And the bigger platforms, just keeping an eye on the new releases that are coming out, usually there's something in it that you can, yeah. like we did it with Facebook three, you know, there's two times we got massive growth from them. There was another time as well. I'll kind of save that for another time. But they released another feature, and we were the, one of the first people in, and we were able to get massive growth out of it. Um, so that would be, you know, it's not just always newer platforms, sometimes new features too. Cool. Yeah, and then the final two parts, yeah. if you want to finish off. Totally, dude. So um, the third user acquisition, sorry, yeah, the third kind of part of strategy are these things called um, other people's networks. So this is a way to kind of harness existing places where your target market is already hanging out and being able to siphon users across to yours, right? So, um, you know, this is probably, this is the same kind of concept as you know this is kind of like Tupperware jars right that you put your lunch in and you go home to like they were probably the original viral marketing uh, company because how they grew grew is they kind of said right who's who's our target market it was in the 1930s right in America it's like who's our target market stay at home moms what to stay how do you like what to stay at home moms do they all get together a few times a week and have these like have cups of coffee or whatever and they all kind of trust each other loads and all this kind of stuff. So they created this program that one of those stay-at-home moms could st- sell could 
throw a Tupperware party and they would sell the Tupperware to the other stay-at-home moms, right? It was brilliant because one of the target market was introducing the product to uh, the other people, the stay-at-home mom. It was a way that they could make a bit of revenue and it worked really, really well. And the great thing was the other stay-at-home moms that were at the Tupperware party kind of would look at it and kind of go, hey, I could do that. And then one of the moms would throw a Tupperware party in their house and then, you know, and it would just grow virally. So that's how Tupperware became such a big business. But that principle can be, um, that principle can be used online today and it has been used kind of tons of occasions. So if you look at, I'm trying to think, um, an example of a business that has done that really, really well um, was use it was uh airbnb right if you look at airbnb's growth plot growth kind of history i don't know do you know the history of their growth yeah no i know it's i mean especially i guess the using craigslist um to leverage their growth i guess totally is sort of the most totally so if, yeah. if you know if you know the craigslist one already uh i'll go to another business like for example um instagram that's how instagram grew right uh how did you hear about instagram it was through you know chances are someone on one of your Facebook friends shared it on Facebook, right? And then you said, what's this Instagram thing? And you clicked on it and you, um, and you downloaded it. Right. So that's kind of, uh, the whole point of this other person's network thing is know where your target market are hanging out to do something related to your product. Right. That's what the Tupperware parties were about. Mm -hmm. For Facebook, Instagram example, people went to Facebook to look at pictures and kill time. So it was the perfect way. If they could somehow connect in and be part of that experience, they could start siphoning users out from Facebook to their platform. And that's what they did, right? Uh, One of the best examples I think I heard someone tell me was... um, you know, there's a great marketer, Dan Martell, right? Um, he did that really well with Clarity. And that was, uh, you know, Clarity is this uh, kind of business-to-business advice um, service for entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. if you need to get some advice, you just go to Clarity, type in, I need some help with my marketing or I'm fundraising, and these top experts will come up and you can click and ring them per minute, right? I've been using it for years. Everyone should check it out. It's really good. Sold the business now, actually. Um, but one thing they did was, uh, like, their, where is their other person's network, right? If it's a business-to-business um, thing, it's LinkedIn, right? So that's where, um, that's where the people for Clarity were hanging out. So they, they created a thing. So when one, any of their business experts signed up to Clarity, they sent them an email going, hey, congratulations for being accepted onto Clarity. Um, please click this link to add Clarity to your LinkedIn profile. So people would click it and it would add on to their LinkedIn job, um, you know, job role that as well as being CMO at wherever, uh, like Dropbox or something, they were also a certified Clarity expert, right? And what happens when you update a new job on, on LinkedIn? Well, your network sees it, don't they? Of course they do. They yeah. get notified. Um, so everyone's and everyone's like, "What's this clarity thing?" Mm. You know, I got a. What's this clarity thing? There was, you know, and so that was a, a way that they were able to leverage other people's networks through the platform 
which was kind of perfect where people need for that to work it needs to be the platform where people kind of go for that kind of experience anyway Mm -hmm. and then see a way how you can kind of somehow siphon off users from it um but in some kind of way does that make sense yeah completely Completely cool. So that's uh, the third one. First one, product innovation. Second one, unique acquisition channels. Third one, um, uh, other people's networks. And then the last one is just about knowing what you have in your data. And this is something, especially kind of early stage in the first year or, or kind of two years. Well, your product isn't fully kind of locked down yet um, while you're still evolving your product. Um, it's super, super important. And the best way for me to explain it is through a story. You may have heard this before, but just for anybody who hasn't, um, there was a company called Bourbon once. Do you, have you heard the story of Bourbon? Yeah. Is it? Okay. Spot, okay. Spot okay. The, yeah. yeah. You carry okay. on. Sorry. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Bourbon, just for people who haven't heard it, Bourbon were this, um, it was a location-based check-in app, right? A bit like Foursquare, right? So the only problem was that Foursquare were already massive at this point. So they were kind of definitely late to the party, the kind of location-based check-in party. But um, but they had a couple of cool features. They were, for example, um, you could take a, you know, you, you could kind of check in. You could do smiley faces and send them to each other. You could take a photo, put a funky filter on it, share it, stuff like that, right? Um, so it had all these kind of feature, cool features, but like the problem was, no one cared about Foursquare, not Foursquare, um, Bourbon, because you know everyone was using Foursquare already, and like just having loads of features does not make your business good, right? So um, you know Bourbon had a problem; they had a, maybe about three thousand users, and they were completely flatlining; they weren't growing at all. They'd raised a couple of hundred thousand dollars in the in the U.S. And they were about nine months into the business. I think they had about three months worth of runway before they went out of business. And the the founders were like, guys, like, what are we going to do here? Um, You know, we've got three months. We've got to do something. It's not working, right? So what they did was they dived into their data, right? And this is the point I'm trying to um, really bring across here. They'd already got quite a lot of user data at this point, Um, and so they dived in literally to Google Analytics and they spent a weekend kind of going, right, what is, do we have anything in here that, you know, shows us a flicker of promise or is this thing just completely dead? And they looked in and one thing that was, one kind of key insight that they saw was that of the few people that actually did use Bourbon, they all really liked one feature. They didn't like any of the other features, but there was one feature they all seemed to use quite a lot actually, and the people that came back was for that reason. And that was the ability to take a picture, put a funky filter on it, and share it, right? So they made a big call. They kind of said, guys, listen, no one likes to check in. No one likes to do all this stuff, but they like to do this. So how? let's make a big play. Let's do a pivot. I'm sure most of you have heard what a pivot is. It's when you kind of really make a, a change to the business strategy. Let's pivot the business into just focusing on um, taking a photo and put a funky filter on it. And uh, they also changed the name of the business at the same time. And you know what the name of the business is? Yeah, it's Instagram. <laughs> That's, that is how the, the story of Instagram came about. Mm-hmm. And it's not so, 
So the, the key thing to remember that is even when you have launched your business and you're going through your few months in, you have some data there, even if it's not growing, um, you know, sometimes you're like sitting on the gold mine. And like in the case of Bourbon and Instagram, if they had not gone into the data and kind of really looked at actually what, how people were using the product, Instagram would never have, have come about. And it wasn't because someone had this like, you know, um, God sent the, the founders of Instagram down this like idea and they're like, Pah! it was, you know, it wasn't that at all. Yeah. It was like they had a really crap idea, but they had the sense to go in and check out their numbers before they went out of business and saw, hey, there's actually something people like in here. Yeah. Let's just double down on that. Um, so that's really the fourth strategy, ensuring that you really kind of go deep dive into your data and see how people are using it because you know a growth hack or a growth viral growth strategy doesn't always have to be about inviting new friends it could be about really honing into your product so people get so like your product so much they they use a lot more right so it's not always about new sharing features sometimes it's about the product you have and a feature that you have and looking at the data to how you can optimize it. That's cool. Awesome. So they're the four. Yeah. They're that's the a, four. That is a, a real deep dive on, uh, on viral growth. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like some great cool examples. Thing, yeah, yeah the, the cool thing about that is like as a kind of, you know, VP of growth for your startup or any startup, just I'm assuming people kind of listen to this or kind of into growth and stuff and marketing, you can literally take those kind of frameworks and go into any startup you may work for. And first of all, you know, put in your, you know, the first, how I started the conversation about your planning, your foundations, get them locked in, do your bullseye strategy with your team. It'll make you look really professional and really kind of like, you know, on the ball, you have this framework. And then when you're looking at growth strategies, you can literally apply that framework. I just that I just talked about, those four rules, and kind of brainstorm around them. And with most things, you know, as long as you have a framework that you can apply and you can kind of apply to different businesses, it rings true for pretty much every type of business. So it's just about how you apply it. That's awesome. Um, I think, you know, we've obviously gone into quite some depth on, uh, you know, marketing growth and viral growth. (laughs) (laughs) You know, something that I'm also quite interested in, um, you know, is, is the personal growth side as well. Um, mm. So, I mean, what are, the, what are the, some of the things that you do on the personal growth side? I think I read that, you know, you're trying to read a book a week uh, this year. Is that right? No, dude, that's not right. I'm no? not trying to. You I'm are. I'm doing it. I'm so, doing it. Oh, well Definitely. done. So you're actually keeping to it. That's brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, always make big goals at the start of every year. Yeah. Um, I've about, I think I've 12 big goals for this year. Yeah. Um, one of them, you know, I was split into like business, um, you know, personal with my relationships, my girlfriend or whatever. And then also kind of personal growth. Mm-hmm. So my personal, one of my personal growth goals was to read a book a year. Uh, no, a book a week this <laughs> year. Right. Um, and yeah, I I would say of all of the kind of new goals and new habits that I've brought in over, you know, the last few years, that's the one that I enjoy the most because mm. like, I would say the biggest driver in my life um, of kind of the startup life is learning. And this just like, I always feel, 
you know, with all these amazing books, marketing books, entrepreneurship books, I only read nonfiction. So yeah. it's all like marketing books, investment books, um, you know, entrepreneur stories, stuff like that, you know, motivational books. And there's so many, I want to read them all. So I said, right, I'm not going to miss out. I'm going to read a book a, a week. And I have, and I, I think anybody can do it. Yeah. It just... It's just about prioritization of what you, how you spend your time. Like I don't watch TV uh, unless I'm complete, you know, really hungover or something. Um, so, you know, I just prioritize my time and I make sure, you know, I know that an average 300-page book takes me about six to seven hours to read. So I just break that into. I schedule the time in my week so I know that I have like an hour. Six, six days of the week and maybe two hours at the weekend that uh, I have to read and then I get through them and I've read some amazing books this year um, and I'll continue to do so So, and knowing every Sunday that I'm about to learn something new for the next week um, that gets me really pumped um, what's, so, yeah. uh, what's the best book you've read so far this year? That is an impossibly difficult question um, the Top best three? Ones... Hmm? Top three if you prefer yeah, yeah. So the best ones were um, Traction, mm-hmm. I read this year right at the beginning. Um, a book called Born to Run. It's all about like how elite kind of these, there's these like, there's this kind of cult of ultra runners and how they, how they run differently. Uh, oh, I, I don't know. It's an amazing book. Yeah. I, I, Who's that? Do you know who's that? Who that? Who wrote uh, that? I don't. But if you yeah. Google "Born to Run," it's cool. like I'll put in the notes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an amazing book about ultra runners. Anyway, there's this like tribe of people in Mexico that can just with no tra- like live in a cavern and are just able to run for like 50 miles a day. Yeah, and it's because they run differently. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's really good. Um, I would say I read "Pitch Anything" by Oren Claff. That's great because we're you know we kind of go through investment rounds here in the business and I kind of use a lot of that. So that's one of my favorites. Um, the Alchemist, uh, oh, Predictable Revenue by Aaron Ross is incredible. The Alchemist um, is a is a fiction book, though. It's uh, I would it kind of is on the border. I yeah. would say yeah, it is fiction, but it's kind of one of these more kind of inspiring stories. It's not like you know, a sci-fi story, right? It's kind of like the point of it is it's kind of got these very truism, true learnings. Yeah, the messages just, are embedded with it. Yeah, it, yeah, it's giving you, it's it's like, a, it's almost like a self-help messaging or mm-hmm. kind of a way to live your life but just told through a narrative, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I classify that as not being a pure fiction book. Have you and read um, Have you read The Fountainhead before? No, is it good? Yeah, that's also, I mean, it's fiction, but it's also similar, you know, lots of... Is that of Aaron Rand? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic book. Um, is it good? Okay, cool. Yeah, lots of, lots of messages and, you know, things embedded within there. Yeah, anybody. Um, fantastic, yeah. A recommendation of a great kind of book, please, like, I'll definitely read it. Um, so, yeah, uh, the next book I want to read is I don't know I kind of I'm getting an urge to really deep dive into personal branding now for the next few weeks mm-hmm. so I'll probably pick out you know if you know any good personal branding books like that's what I want to deep dive on now for mm-hmm. the next kind of three or four weeks so I usually do that previous I was deep diving on investment stuff mm-hmm. uh, whatever I'm trying to achieve in my life whether it be I need some motivation or maybe I 
you know, I'm, lear- I'm doing an investment round. We're raising our Series A investment round. I want to learn deep dive into investment or I want to get my blog really, really good. I always like pick a book, the best book on it, read it. One week later, I'm on it and then I apply it. Boom. It's great. Cool. Awesome. Great. Yeah, um, no, so, big, big fan of books. So, I mean, yeah. any, any recommendations, you know, I would love to hear I've them. Lots, I've lots. Um, so that was one of my kind of personal growth things. And yep. then um, another thing that I brought in this year, which has been a great addition is uh, kind of, I'm sure, you know, you, you know all about kind of morning rituals and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. I've, I've really kind of got a morning ritual that's working really well for me at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of fits in with my weekly ritual as well. So I have a, a way that I plan out my week, which I find is really, really effective. Um, yeah, I won't go into too much detail on it, but I do have a blog post where I detail it in, in detail uh, okay. how I plan out the week. And I have a, I use this one worksheet that somebody I know gave to me. And it just is, is a great way to structure your week to make sure you're super balanced, but still achieving three most important things in each area. Um, so planning that out but my morning ritual exercise in the morning uh followed by you know breakfast i always have porridge love porridge right being an irish guy i suppose cup of coffee and then i sit down and i write down the three things i'm most grateful for in life right because you know sometimes you don't take stock to kind of go hey like you know i'm really lucky to be have such a great life my i'm really healthy Uh, i've got to say you know great people around me that love me or whatever i'm really grateful that my business has like 25 people and it's doing really well at the moment so you just don't take that time you're so busy hustling right so it's like takes a minute a morning where you just kind of stop and you just reflect and then i write down the three things which um if i do them today and accomplish accomplish them i'll have had an incredible day so I do the three, those three things. Uh, three things I'm grateful for. Three things I want to achieve, and then um, after that, I take out my planning thing and I, I plan the day. And then straight after that, I'll uh, go and meditate for ten minutes. Uh, and I really got into meditating this this year. Um, there's a there's an app called Headspace, which mm-hmm. most people I'm sure may have had it checked out. Do if you if you haven't, and. Calm is another one that gets mentioned quite a quite yeah, a bit, yeah, so. yeah yeah yeah. Here, that's really good. I yeah. haven't tried that one myself. I, I kind of at the start of the year, I took a year's subscription with uh, Headspace, and yeah. I just use it every day now. And all those things combined, I'm just like really uh, excited about. You know, it just keeps your energy levels up and makes you kind of just makes you ha- you know more balanced because like and happier because like the way I could describe it is you know being an entrepreneur, right, or working in a kind of an entrepreneurial company, you know, sometimes there's storms and there's waves that come over and stuff. And having those kind of things in place like, you know, a morning ritual and meditating and stuff, it just gives you a solid foundation made of rock that, you know, if you're the tree or whatever, it just gives you something to kind of, when those big waves hit, it you know, you're it just allows you to bounce back a lot more. Whereas if you don't have those things, it's kind of, you just get like moved around. And I I just see it with so many people in 
kind of the, the startup world, which is just so intensely full on and stuff that you have to have those things that allow you to, you know, be successful in the long term because it's a marathon. It's definitely not a sprint. And, mm. you know, you have to be able to maintain a high output um, over a consistent period of time, you know, because it's hard, you know, you just got to keep doing it and keep hustling. And uh, it's all about coming back and like smashing it every day. So cool. Um, final couple of questions. Um, penultimate one is if you could master one skill, what would it be? Um, well, the next skill that I want to master is um, a skill of there's a skill you can learn around kind of almost like visual memory about being able to remember things a lot better through um, remembering things through images, right? And this is the method that, you know, grant, there's, you can become a grandmaster of memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a certain method that you change the way that you remember things, not through kind of like words and stuff, but you, you change things into images and you and you combine them together and you can remember incredible things incredibly well through it so that's the skill that i want to learn next um yeah cool um and then one final question when you think of success what or who comes to mind um Yeah, like I kind of looked to all the successful entrepreneurs from like San Francisco, Silicon Valley, all that kind of stuff. Um, so the likes of, you know, Sean Ellis, uh, Dan Martell, um, you know, Steve Jobs, all these kind of like classic guys, mm-hmm. like, you know, no one that you haven't heard of before, but there are certain people that I think have, I suppose the key thing with the people that I see as successful is kind of almost creating a new category and just like making it a global de facto. Um, I find that really, really cool. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, but success, I do, I suppose, you know, I do kind of see success linked to leaving a lasting impact on the world. Cool. Awesome. All right, Howard. Well, it has been brilliant to chat. Um, so good to hear, you know, some about, you know, especially on the sort of viral marketing side of stuff. Uh, and then also glad to hear that you're, you're hitting your goals, um, your personal growth goals as well, and reading a book a week. It's something that I've always thought about doing, but I've always found it a bit of a challenge. Um, but um, if people want to find you, they can find you on Twitter, right? Um, at what's your handle? Yeah, it's at Howard V for Victor, VK, Howard VK. And my blog is startupremarkable.com. Cool. Startupremarkable.com. And my own business is adludio.com. Cool. Awesome. Well, perfect. Well, thanks again, Howard. Really appreciate chatting. Um, For everyone listening, it's uh, late on a Friday night, so... I'm sure uh, you're pretty keen to go and grab a beer now. Um, But yeah, really appreciate chatting and uh, hopefully we can chat again soon. Pleasure. Cheers, dude. Cheers. Bye for now.